Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Tonaris podcast. This week we have a special guest, uh, RT man, Brian O'Connell. Um, Brian is in recovery himself and he's kindly agreed to share his experience. He's wrote a very popular book, um, a memoir, um, and we link that in the description. But I'll let you take it away, Brian. For the people that have no idea who you are, um, do you want to tell us about who you are, where you're from? I grew up in County Clare, actually, and I'm 44, so I've been living in Cork about 27 years, here since I was 17, 18. Um, I came here to college to study English and History in UCC when I was 18, and never left. It was never the plan, really, just one of those things that happened. And You're like, the second Clare person to come to Cork that didn't leave, that was on the podcast. Who's that? Who's Dr. Dr. Sharon Lambert. Oh, is she from Clare? <laughs> she Funny is, yeah, yeah. And there's a neighbour of mine at the moment, Dear Negrifa, who just won Book of the Year, who's from Clare as well and living here. Oh, anyway, right. so the Clare people are slowly taking over Cork. You like, you like the, the, the party scene in Cork? <laughs> it's the weather. It's the weather. We all came here for St. Henry. Um... <laughs> So I, I've i been working as a journalist for about 20 years, 20 odd years, working with RT about 10. And uh, I work on a show called Today with Claire Byrne. It used to be Today with Sean O'Rourke. So I'm a radio reporter, basically. I'd be on a couple of times a week. And I generally work from outside of Dublin. So I live in Cork, uh, have a little studio at home. So I'd pop in and do my reports at home generally and out and about. But it's usually, it kind of tends to be stories of social interest, human interest, um, more sensitive type stories are the ones I tend to do. Now, it can be anything really, you know, from Brexit to whatever is happening. You were in Cork Prison, did it? I was in Cork Prison last week. I, I've had a good relationship with the prison service. Like, I've been in and out of prisons, different to the way you've been in and out of prisons. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got the experience, exactly. Then, yeah. Yeah. Fortunately. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I was in Cork Prison l- last week. Um, and it was really looking at how they're trying to maintain family contact, given that there are no physical visits. So it's a real challenge. Mm. But funny enough, video visits have become a thing in there, mm. something that maybe should have been happening anyway. But there were all sorts of worries about GDPR and what if you're seeing stuff in the house you shouldn't be seeing and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. But now really popular, um, like prisoners were saying to me, I can see the kids doing the homework. I can see my house. They can have all the family together on the couch chatting. So it was just very interesting to see that. And when you think about it, like you could help your child do their homework or you could support them through Mm -hmm. issues they're going And a lot of the time... Um, once they don't see some fella sneaking out the back door (laughs) 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 or if you've no kids you might be able to see something else too with your own own very controlled all recorded and then like and I suppose some kids well some families don't like bringing kids into prison they don't want them in there or they don't even know their parents are in prison so for them then it can be oh look daddy's away working and Mm. let's have a call with him Um, so that was kind of really interesting it was interesting like I've been in the prison a couple of times since lockdown just how there seems to be everybody working together in a way you know that people realise we need to keep COVID out we kind of need to work together here to keep it out staff and prisoners Um, so I'm kind of fascinated by prisons anyway because like I suppose looking at my own life if things hadn't gone a certain way I could have ended up either in prison on the streets wherever so i've done quite a lot of stories around homelessness with rough sleepers with uh people who are on the streets because i suppose maybe there's that natural affinity there where um i feel like a real sense of um a but real I, link with people like yeah. that yeah but it's like uh, because of your experience you can look at and we're the same you can look at somebody in a prison or somebody on the street begging and you just think to yourself 
there go me but for the grace of God you're, you're not we're not that far removed no. from them outcomes do you know what it is for me um, I, th- I think it's because you know what it's like to be in addiction yeah Um, and you know what way it could take you it can take you anywhere it can take you down, down any road and the prison route is another yeah. one homelessness is another one you know Um. Do you want to talk a little bit about your own recovery? Yeah, sure. And how it even started? <laughs> yeah, I started normally enough drinking, you know, as a mm. young person. And uh, I suppose still looking back, like I grew up in Innes, it was a pretty big drinking town. And mm. you are in pubs from quite a young age, from probably the age of 14 onwards. It was fairly accepted to be drinking in a bar. Um, and there was a lot of street drinking and all of that. And I suppose looking back, though, when I look back on it, any time I was drinking or was drunk, there were issues, you know, for sure. And it it wasn't dramatic initially, you know, it built up gradually over time. Um, And probably even by the age of 17, 18, probably most people around me wouldn't have said that I had a major problem. Now, I sometimes wonder if I'd grown up in America would that have been the case? Like maybe from a lot earlier, people would have been saying, listen, you gotta, you got to deal with this thing here. It's having a real impact mm-hmm. on you. It's changing your personality in a profound way. But obviously Ireland, we have such a high tolerance level as a society for yeah. problem drinking. We don't name it. Um, that you're, you're camouflaged really for a long time. I think you can progress throughout your late teens, early 20s. You can have a relationship. You can be in college. You can seemingly have it together. But at the same time, you can have this very dysfunctional relationship like I did with alcohol. Mm. And it was a time, too, where we glorified drinkers in Ireland. You know, yeah. we uh, we sort of celebrated it. We People talk about uh, the stereotypical Paddy, the punch drunk. And when I was writing the first book, I remember going back and looking at representations of Irish people in the 19th century in, in British media. And it was invariably like uh, an Irish person with kind of monkey features, always drunk, always beating people up. And it sort of rankles with you when you see that and you think that's not a stereotype I, I like. But then when I was growing up, certainly we used to stereotype ourselves all the time mm. every St. Patrick's Day we used to sell this image of ourselves abroad yeah. and the drunken Irish and the presidents come here you put the point in their but hand I think fine. the thing about stereotypes is there's always an element of truth or fact <laughs> totally, behind yeah. the stereotype yeah. you know so it wasn't really till I progressed through college and then it started to have a profound impact um, I became a dad quite young I think it was 22 didn't deal with that quite well probably and the drinking accelerated and accelerated and it got to a point then where it was definitely I was I suppose a regular binge drinker is how I'd probably describe it and I would have realized that it was certainly an issue not to the extent where I thought I needed to particularly do anything about it because a lot of the people I was around were uh, having a pretty good time as well you know Mm. Um, few things started to happen like I suppose by my mid-twenties I realised okay I don't have a house really or I don't have a place to stay I was sleeping on a friend's mattress in a friend's house job was very sporadic I'd get a bit of work here and there didn't feel good about myself when I got up in the morning and had a look at myself in the mirror increasingly felt darker and darker and felt this isn't the life I should have and couldn't quite figure out why and obviously knew that drink primarily drink now there were drugs involved as well but it was primarily drink was the issue Mm. And uh, by the age of 26, 27, I was in a lot of debt. I'd alienated a lot of people, had limited enough uh, interaction with my son at the time. Um, for what the, about your relationship with the mother of your child? At the time, it wasn't great when but we broke up. You, you, but you were throughout, or you broke up? We, so we, yeah, we met when we were quite young and then we stayed together, I think, till my son was three and then we broke up. And... Um, now at the moment like today it's fantastic and it's great yeah. and we, we got on really well but yeah definitely i like i'd say i was i was uh fairly difficult what was your career like when you left college and the drinking escalated and the relationship breakdown and... <laughs> i've had about 20 careers but the career initially i went to college did english and history then got this kind of scholarship thing to do irish land history which i was fascinated in uh, halfway through that decided I'd be an actor right you know you've never seen me in that and I was at a spectacular disaster <laughs> failure as an actor right and I uh, did a couple of sm- plays in the opera a few other things 
then what did I do then I think I got into IT everybody was doing computer I did a C programming course in computers and FOSS and got a job half I didn't have to finish the course now got people were coming in just giving people yeah. jobs like you're into IT grand job I can program I couldn't <laughs> were, then, you, what? Were, were you quiet were you quiet person I wasn't really like I was always quite outgoing yeah. and I was always that so I was quiet if you, like if you met me like this now I wouldn't have had this type of confidence to talk but I would have when I'd had a few drinks and I felt yeah. that I became myself when I had a few drinks so the it was drink. that yeah. thing where without even realising it I had come to rely on alcohol I thought to bring out my personality mm. to be emotional to you know engage with sex like all of those formative mm. things alcohol was involved and then it just became more and more of a crutch mm. so media wise I had began in the Irish Examiner I think and began in local newspapers so the media career was building it was very stop start I wouldn't turn up for jobs I'd turn up drunk I might I might go missing for a few days so that wasn't really happening to the way it should have been and then really it came to a point where my parents intervened like the family had an intervention and they asked would I meet them over by St. Finbar's Hospital one day and the whole family were there you know and by this stage now, I don't think I had been home to a, a lot. You know, I'd taken money and stuff and I'd had a lot of debt. Were you able to hide it because your family was in Clare and you were in Cork? Probably a bit more, but it came to a point where there was no hiding it when you owed money yeah. or there was no hiding it when I'd go home and my behaviour was completely erratic or mm. I'd go missing for a few weeks, you know, or I suppose they knew that my relationship with my son wasn't great. They knew I probably didn't have a fixed place to live at that time. I'd, I'd got a place and I'd been evicted from it because I didn't pay the rent basically after only about three weeks. Um, so they intervened. It was like an intervention with a family therapist, I think, over by St. Finbar's Hospital, which had Arbor, Arbor Hill. Arbor House. Arbor House, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And to be honest, I was kind of glad at that point and was happy enough that they were calling it what it was. They were just saying, this is how you're drinking at the moment is affecting all of us individually. And hard to hear, but they asked me then in Arbor House, is it something that you'd like to do something about? Would you come back to us next week? And I came back to them for a couple of weeks. They'd urine test me every week. I think I stayed clean for about two out of the three weeks or something. Yeah. And at that point then, they suggested going to Tabor Lodge to a 28-day program. Like, to be totally honest, for me, I was thinking, that's a month now where I don't have to worry about getting a place to stay. I don't have to worry about bills. Mm. I, that that sounds all right yeah. so I kind of committed to it on that basis where it might give me a bit of breathing space but you know I owed a few quid and it might get people off my back for a while here if I do this and that was sort of my attitude going in um so a friend uh, Liam Heffernan who's an actor who played Blackie Connors in Glenroe dropped me down to Tabor Lodge <laughs> great mate of mine was always there for me when I needed him you know always gave me a couch back in the day and we're still good mates he's living down in Dingle now just became a dad Probably. Um, congratulations yeah mm. great guy so Liam dropped me down to Tabor Lodge <laughs> with my stuff in a plastic bag and what uh, are you feeling as you're I was rattled yeah. I was absolutely rattled I'd managed to stay off it for about a week or two beforehand which was good I thought because it gave me a little bit of a base where I, I didn't have to come down like t- to the same extent as, as many of the people I met. But as I was walking in the door of Tabor Lodge, there was a guy outside, right? And he called, called me over to the side and he said, um, what, what are you in for? And I said, uh, it's mostly drink. And he said, right. And he said, what about the drugs? And I said, I sort of, yeah, I mean, definitely an issue. Like, but Whatever to, was going. Like. Yeah, but not to the same <laughs> yeah. extent. And he said, do you gamble? I said, well, I'd, like every year in the Gold Cup, I'd put a fiver on one horse. He said, don't tell him. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, uh, I came in with one addiction. I have two now and they're not finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works, really. Uh, yeah. so, so I was in there going, Jesus Christ, what else am I going to have to admit to in yeah. here, right? So anyway, Tabor Lodge, that started it. And I suppose it started my whole other life then started. And you know, when you were in Tabor Lodge... Um, did you have that? I know part of the programme is when the family comes down and you get yeah. to hear some home truths and stuff. Did yeah. you have that? That was tough, yeah. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, it was tough because I suppose myself and my dad, and we, we got on very well, but we wouldn't have the kind of in-depth conversations, I think it's fair to say. Like, I, I wouldn't be comfortable with it, maybe he wouldn't be comfortable with it. And suddenly then you're having to have conversations which seem very forced, mm. uh, especially for Irish men, I think. Yeah. You know, we're emotionally 
a little bit stunted sometimes uh, back then anyway like now i think we, i think it's a lot different i think society has opened up a bit more but especially back then you didn't tend to talk about these things and you know in my extended family there would be issues with alcohol which probably weren't addressed uh maybe going back to generations as well you know so that was there in the background as a kind of a cloud hanging around so for me and my family to talk very openly about where I was at, it meant that they had to confront certain things possibly mm. as well. So that's difficult. Like there's this whole context mm. around it, this whole social context. An, alco- you know? an, al- an alcoholic or a, a drug addict, um, we don't get them behaviours in a vacuum. And yeah. there's a context. There's yeah. a, in, in a, a community where we're raised, in a household where we grew up. Yeah. And all these things contribute to the formation of the person that drinks you know what I mean so yeah you can be down in the treatment centre and you can get home truths but sometimes you can give home truths too now I didn't have that in my um, treatment centre thank god (laughs) but at the same time she got off light I know I was was in table lodge as well I went to the same treatment centre as yourself and uh, I know what it's like the family thing but um, for me being in there, I was completely numb. I didn't know. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't a clue what was going on. You know, and I, I was listening to all the other people that were in there. I think there was 18 or 20 of us in yeah. there at the time. And they were saying, they're all talking about the priest, seeing the priest at the end. Because they said, oh, when you go to the priest, now, like, you're, it's like you're waiting for this magic wand like, yeah, to be yeah. clicked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, what happens? <laughs> oh, you start crying. And I'm inside in the priest then afterwards, like my last day or something like that after mass, and I'm trying to bait the tears out the back of my head <laughs> to start crying like the show. But I couldn't do it, like yeah. I just couldn't do it. I was just it was really, really, really difficult for me at the time to yeah. show any form of emotion. No, it did touch a nerve when 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 my my partner back then know my wife um spoke about yeah. the stuff that I was causing for her. You know, and, yeah. and her having to protect the kids then from um, my binges and alcohol and drugs. You know, and my kids wouldn't have seen anything because she protected them. She always kept me out of the house. You know, but it's really difficult. I remember there were people that wrote letters in. It's difficult as well not to, like, you have to leave that there and not to carry that out with yeah. you and to say. Come here, what was that letter you wrote there about exactly, me? Yeah. Do you know, I could write a few letters. Yeah, like, you know, it's difficult not to take does, that attitude out of there. Like, there's a saying in recovery, like, resentment is probably the number one relapse or like, yeah. you know, carrying resentment with people will only do, will only drag you back into the drink, like. Yeah. And you have to let go of the resentment and any beefs or arguments or grudges when you come into recovery and you drop the drink you have to drop all that too yeah and just kind of get a bit of positivity into your life isn't it it's an amazing process like obviously you're there with 18 people from all strands of life um and you are work you're you know you're learning as much off each other as you are the counselors as you know yeah like it's i found it an amazing process and there are people i'm still in contact I would say of the 18, there's probably six or seven dead. I would mm. say there's maybe four clean or sober. That's a reality, isn't that it? That is real. Mm. Now, some may have gone back a second time and a third time, but like they, they are the stats, you know, and mm. maybe you get a couple of months and maybe you get a couple of years. But yeah, the, the deaths, there was particularly one death of a young lad who did really well in recovery, was the go-to guy. We all, he was only 21 or 22 and he died shortly after we got out. Jeez, it really knocked me for six because mm. I was thinking... He, in the environment in there, thrived when he got that bit of space. But when he went back to the environment he came from and to the social kind of, you know, connections that were around him, he was just, he, the, the odds were stacked against him the minute he walked out the gate. Yeah. It's the environment. It's going back into that environment. And that's, this is where I, I think it's, it's very important with people that are in prison that are, are in recovery. A lot of them are going back out into an environment where there's a lot of alcohol and drugs and yeah. crime and violence, you know. Um, for people coming out of prison, there should be, so. Uh, it's my opinion, I think there should be something there, you know, that can allow prisoners carry on 
their existing recovery from prison yeah. you know like we an aftercare house or yeah. something like yeah. that yeah. but the funny thing about that then as well Timmy that like there's a lot of fellas I would have met who, who have gotten so much more in terms of counselling treatment in prison than they got on the outside like it's, yeah. it's it's there's something wrong when you can't access detox beds yeah really like it's really difficult to get a detox bed at the moment especially should, if you've should, got two or three addictions going it's true and the young person you're talking about there that thrived in the treatment centre I would have been like that in prison like on the outside it would have been very chaotic you know but in prison I wasn't I was well behaved didn't take much drugs played sport and went to the school and you know a model type prisoner yeah uh, linking with the key workers and do all these things but when I got out when I was younger now 18 to 26 let's say when I got out it's like the enormity of the task ahead hits you that yeah. you, you can say in prison or in the context of a treatment centre say at this time now I'm going to make it work but when you get out and you realise actually your only option is to go back to the same area yeah. and your whole identity it's just a huge task, you know, yeah. and it was only really because I, I, like Timmy's talking about aftercare houses, I had an aftercare house to go to and that was really critical for me, you know, I was able to get out of my old social context and into a new one yeah. and be supported in that house with Cork Simon, with a key worker and really held my hand for the first 12 months yeah. until I was able to get stronger and then go back into the old context but I can totally understand how that young fellow would have been great in the treatment centre, but when he got out, he just wasn't able, do you know what I mean? Just not yeah. strong enough, do you know, and that's where the aftercare comes in. And there's aftercare for treatment, there's um, Fellowship House. <coughs> fellowship House, yeah. yeah. And I think, I, I read the recent study on Table Logic, it was like a review, but I think one of the outcomes was that they were saying 28 days isn't long enough, essentially, mm. that it needs to be longer. But I was lucky that I came, when I got out of there, I was able to rent a house, just a little, out in Ballyfallan, so outside of the city a bit. And then a, a, a mate kind of took a room for a while and just two of us, it was great, you know, like we kind of had a bit of support for each other and career-wise things changed really quickly. I think sometimes the difficulty with people I've met who've gone into recovery is that life doesn't change a whole lot and it can be really difficult then to continue on that road when you're saying, well, what am I getting from this here? Whereas for me, luckily, career-wise, things changed within a couple of weeks. Really, I got a couple of opportunities. I started writing for the Irish Times, I think. Something I'd always wanted. I started building on that. You know, I was there. I was ready for it now. And I could see, okay, right, this is life without alcohol. That was life without alcohol. It was a kind of a no-brainer then. Mm. And it's sobriety just, everything started clicking into place. I struggled with AA. And in, in, in the book, I sort of... I found it difficult to write about it because I didn't quite do the AA model, right? I've huge respect for AA and NA. A lot of my friends said, and I, I, I have huge respect for it. And for me, I suppose I didn't, it just didn't quite click with me for whatever reason. And spirituality didn't click with me either. And I remember that was one of the things in there that they were challenging me about was that, I, the higher power, the concept of higher power, I found difficult, and I kept kind of questioning it and coming back to it and interrogating it and saying, they were saying, look, at some point here, you got to let that go, man, yeah. and just accept this as whatever. It's your grandmother. It's, it's whatever. So I did a for a while, and then, as I said, a mate kind of rented with me, and I just found a support there, and I always had great respect for a and a, and I suppose then as the media career took off. A couple of years later, I started writing a little bit about recovery and, and about addiction, wrote a piece in the Irish Times, wrote the book where I was very honest and just threw it all on the page mm. and said, like, I don't think I would be that honest now if I was to yeah. sit down. But it's write. like, it's, it's what you're talking about there is very similar to myself and Timmy. We did the A and N A thing too, 12 Steps and all that, but kind of moved away from it for various reasons. And there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. It's not all about one method. Yeah. Um, But we find... I'm sure uh, writing your book and writing yeah. your your art there's a therapeutic value in that alone. Totally. And for me and Timmy in the podcast, every week we're talking to different guests. We're talking about mental yeah. health, addiction, recovery. It's like a meeting. It's mm -hmm. the same thing. Yeah. It's you're still talking about it. It's still a part of our lives. Yeah, we've loads of stuff going on outside the podcast. We're both working full time. Yeah, we're doing studying and everything, and with all that. But this is a constant. Where every week we're talking about recovery, and this is our meeting. Yeah. And you just but you can't neglect the recovery. Yeah, yeah you, you can move away from NNA, but you can't move away from your recovery, you're on dangerous ground then. Yeah, yeah. 
it, it's a fine line like I didn't want to be defined by virtue of the fact that I didn't drink anymore and yet at the same time I know I wrote a book about it and I did the late late and I became the person in the media for a couple of years where every time there was a drink debate or there was the junior search or St Paddy's Day or Archer's Day if you remember that thing you were invariably the person on a panel with someone from the drinks industry and you were having to tell a bit of your story every time. And I did that for a couple of years and that probably kept me in the public eye sober, if you like, because I, I remember thinking, geez, I'd be the biggest hypocrite in the world now if I started drinking again. Um, I do drink to non-alcoholic beers and I know someone I met recently was saying to me, you know, that technically to us, I was in an addiction centre doing a report and I was talking to the counsellor and I was saying... I drink the non-alcoholic beers. Like, what would your view of that be? <laughs> they were saying, well, technically, we would see that as relapsing. Well, Hawaii, like, if there's... Like, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing about it, right? Yeah. Um, I suppose it's the taste. Some people look at the taste. No, there's no effect. Yeah. You know, there's no... It's not doing anything. You're not going out and you're not going fighting. Or you're yeah. not going to rob a car or a house or, or swinging off the lights. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're the effects of the alcohol, the, the pure stuff, but... Um, I do drink it. Me no. Uh, I would don't. You, James? I would tell you why I don't. Yeah. Because I never liked the taste of alcohol, of yeah. beer or anything. My drinking was always a medium to get paralytic. Yeah. It was never about, oh, this is a nice taste in beer. Lovely no. white wine. It was never about that. It was about, <laughs> I drink whatever is there yeah. and just to get me flattened. Okay. That was my... So, it doesn't make it, so if, you're, if you're out now on a night, what will you have? Coke's air or orange juice, yeah. something like the seven up. But do you know like what, though, Brian? It's very bad. Do you know what? Stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> what it's like. if, if that works for you. You're losing a sponsorship here from Heineken 00, zero let's go on. But if, know, it wor- yeah. if, if it works for you, 100% well, I, I'm behind yeah, it. You well, know? I didn't for years, right? And I didn't for years because I was paranoid that if, if I was in a pub having a glass. Now, but firstly, the stuff back then was collaborative, desperate stuff, right? Or, or some of the stuff that was around. And in recent years, it's got really good. And yeah. so I didn't for years because I thought if someone sees me in a pub, they'll think, geez, your man's drinking. And there he is. And he's talking about the drink thing and an alcoholic. So I suppose I wasn't fully comfortable in sobriety for a good few years. And then I was at something and someone I know who's a long time sober say, ordered one of the German non-alcoholic things. They had it on draft. And I said, geez, do you drink that? And he said, yeah. He, he was 12 or 13 years sober at this stage. He said, yeah. He said, I'd have one if I'm at something like this. And I said, sure, I'll have one there and we'll see what it's... And then, now, I would say once a month, there'll be a bottle in the fridge at home and I'll have it yeah. at Heineken 00 watching a rugby match. Yeah. If, there's a, if we have a barbecue, I might there's have There's nothing at all wrong with that. Like. Once, once, once you have your senses about you yeah. and you know exactly what it is and what it's doing and yeah. there's no thought behind that saying, do you know what? That's not too bad. I think I'll have, do you know, I think I'll have one with a bit of alcohol, real alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, then there's a problem. When you're stable in your recovery and you're aware and you, you know, you've your personal development done and all that, then you could do stuff like that. Yeah. If, if people... My wife now might have totally different. go back to that personal development thing there. Exactly. Right? But, you know, you, you have a good bit of distance. I don't know about be- done, right? <laughs> We're always a work in progress. We always say that. But you have a good bit of distance between your last yeah. uh, drink. 16 years, I think. Exactly. Something like that. But yeah. you know, for people in early recovery, a lot of people in early recovery... Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it because you you're in a pub. You, you don't want to be triggering, yeah. yeah. You know, and the taste yeah. can... You, you could fool yourself very quickly. Think, yeah. You know what? If I just have a real one, nobody would know the difference. And before not, you're in the bridewell. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one of the first... Like, I, I, the corner house was a bar I used to drink in a lot and down by Coburg Street. And maybe... Th- I, I'd been in so I'd been in Tabor Lodge came back out it was a couple of months and I went in there one afternoon and Fergal the guy who owns Corner House great guy he I went in kind of, I was a bit kind of geez, should I be in here should I not be in here I was just going in to read the paper and he put on a fresh pot of coffee and dropped it down in front of me so that's on the house it's a good to see you blit, and yeah. it was that kind of we didn't have to say anything mm, yeah. but he was more or less saying you're welcome here like just yeah. because you're not drinking you know so and I wouldn't have gone to pubs that much in the first year you know to yeah. be fair and I still know it It doesn't bother me really yeah. like, but, but I just want to go back to uh, so they're going back yeah. to the A and the NA thing yeah um, they have a re- we, you said you said it there they have a really important part to play at the beginning they do yeah. you know because somebody that's in early recovery, they need social interaction yeah. with other other addicts or alcoholics or compulsive gamblers, you know, just to relate to them and yeah. be able to understand a little bit more, you know. But there does come a point then 
when you get so strong and you do the outside work stuff, you you know, you start dealing with other problems, major, you use alcohol or drugs or whatever, that you really, you know, you, you have the tools within you then to be able to manage everything yeah. that's going on for you. You know, I think I think that's very important, but it's like just It's to, hard to talk about it, Timmy, without oh yeah. upsetting a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Well upset yeah. because funny enough somebody who's in a and I won't say recently had said to me, you know, we consider you a fraud, basically. Yeah. And I was saying, What do you mean by that? And they were saying, You don't use the term alcoholic and you haven't over the years too much mm-hmm. and I'd often say problem drinker. Now I have and in the book I have said alcoholic and I've no issue. But I've always said the word alcoholic had been so taken out of shape in an Irish context. Like it's 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 got such a high bar that I didn't identify with it in an Irish context. And I've always said that. Mm. But <clears throat> that person had said to me, you know, it was really kind of fundamentalist. You know, we don't consider you one of us, basically. Yeah. And I said, all right. But I think um, it, I, I it, it's think... a funny kind of thing. Yeah. Where, and so, any but anytime I've talked about AA or NA, I've always said it is. It helps so many people. And we always recommend people go there, Absolutely. like all the time. Absolutely. But yeah. another thing, and on that, and and I won't bash any area. We're not bashing. We're just no. discussing. But um, I suppose when we wanted to get into this, this would be frowned upon. By the way, because it's all about anonymity, you know. And this would be frowned upon in in and there. But I was reading about. I was reading Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy, right? And he was talking about in the context of religion to get rid of the religion. No, I'm not bashing religion either. I'm just reading what he he was writing about. Get rid of the religion because the. The traditions and and all that stuff is restricting you from being a completely free man. Yeah. And I felt that in an NA. Yeah. I felt I was bound by this book that was written by two men with the mm-hmm. best of intention eighty years ago. But I felt like that I wanted to do this public stuff. You know, yeah. I was on the Tommy Turner show and to do this and to do it and to build awareness. <clears throat> but I couldn't within the confines of a, tr- a very kind of fundamental. Yeah. Um, core group and, and I and struggled I with to get the uh, anonymous side of it because to me it felt like it was further enforcing that stereotyping I was trying to break free on, from and it like the stereotyping was so profound that I often say I felt way much more stigma in sobriety than I have when I was in active addiction way much more stigma that people were hugely uncomfortable with the fact that I was very identifiable as someone who was in recovery and sober and that I was talking about it a lot and people called me everything over the years from a fundamentalist to like a guy in a crusade and not not into fun. And like, I'm so relaxed in, about it in a way, you know, it, it really, I wanted to kind of challenge that stereotyping. So the anonymous thing for me felt any time I was doing interviews over the years where people say, I don't want my name using it. I was always kind of saying, you know, that sort of brings us all to a point where we shouldn't be talking about this. And I said, I don't feel that's the case, really. Like, that's part of the issue in Ireland, that we have kept it under the carpet for yeah. so long, you know. I, I I personally think it needs to be spoken about more. Totally, yeah. Because yeah. the more it's spoken about, the more people will come out yeah. and say, I have a problem, I need a bit of help. And they'll be able to relate to either me, yourself or James. Yeah. And with our stories, then they'll be able to go out and find a, any a psychotherapists or counsellors or whatever yeah. to be able to talk about whatever's going on from yeah. you know I think it's very very important for years nobody spoke about it you'd only speak about addiction alcoholism inside an NARA but now it's more open yeah you know it, it, they're different times we're living yeah. in a different and time even after this podcast now when it goes out this is Friday it'll go up Monday you're going to get people contact you about this you're going to yeah. people will contact us isn't it way better that like people you're going to get people that contact you that haven't read your book and um, they're going to hear you for the first time and they're going to hear us talking about it for the first time they're going to be exposed to every time we do a podcast as a new person here and isn't that way just the whole point of making it public and having a free access on youtube so that people can just turn on youtube it might be an accident and it might spark something in them say they might be in a shitty situation here are you speaking as identify with you and say fuck it, there actually is a way out and this is how he done it. Yeah. I might contact him or I might ask Timmy, you know, and that's how this thing works, you know. Do you know what's becoming very, very popular? CA, uh, cocaine anonymous. I spoke to, you know, I, I just say, I, I spoke to somebody recently there and they were talking about their own cocaine addiction 
and he doesn't think he has the strength to do it because the environment he's in, he's in a, he's around a lot of people that are using and stuff. He's in jeopardy with his relationship and all his finances and and I, I said to him, I said, well, why don't you come to a meeting with myself and Tommy, you know, we'll take you to a meeting and, you know, we'll have a chat or whatever if you're ever stuck. We exchange numbers, we always do it because it's the right thing to do yeah. because it was done for me, yeah. you know. Um, and, like, he just, some people just cannot, they can't escape the the, the belief that they they can't get away from it, you know. Yeah. I was the same. Yeah, yeah. What got me away from this was the trip into Table Lodge, something just happened in yeah. there, you know. But yeah, but it was like, I, I couldn't envisage certain things without alcohol. I couldn't mm. envisage going on holidays. I couldn't envisage being in a relationship. I couldn't envisage ever talking about emotions without being drunk. And then after a while, you do a bit of work and obviously counselling and rehab and suddenly that becomes the norm and I couldn't imagine now filtering my experience of the world with alcohol. Mm. I just... It's now obviously I'm not complacent enough to think you know I'm still aware of the fact that I can't let up a certain guard around it, but I just the control I have now I wouldn't be willing to give that up for the sake of what like I a know. good night out mm. or like it, people often say to me Jesus sure surely now at the stage in your life where you seem fairly stable and things are good that you could have a drink or two and you wouldn't go at it to the same extent that I did in my early twenties. Maybe, yeah. to be honest with you, maybe I could go back and develop a kind of a casual relationship with alcohol. But that that risk, like to take that move, I don't see why I should take that risk to jeopardise a lot for for, for what? Like, exactly. It's we, we, we put too much value and emphasis on alcohol in Ireland. It's more society. But I do think that's changed, funny enough. And I do think... So I was 26, 27 when I went to rehab. So that was 16, 17 years ago. I think if it was today, it would be a lot easier because there is an emphasis on fitness now. There is yeah. an emphasis on people going and to coffee shops and stuff. That yeah. culture, like I remember going into a bar. I used to go to a lot. I was a couple of weeks out of, out of. Um, I didn't go into a lot of bars now when I got out of Table Lodge, right? <laughs> I did work, but I went into one or two. But one I went into and I remember asking for coffees about five past six and they were saying, I should the machines turned off at six o'clock there, the coffee machine. And that was Ireland back then was that this is drinking. If you want coffee now, you can whatever, go home and make a Maxwell house or something. But now, as you said, we've imported that European continental thing where it's brilliant, like great to see it. Um, Having said that, I I did spend a lot of time over the last nine months reporting on and like what, what was interesting to me was that move to... I do think there's a good role for the pub, for the conscientious public and for running a good house, for, you know, controlled environment... There was a lot of drinking being done at home and mm. there was a lot of uncontrolled drinking, you know. So I wonder what it'll be like for the next two to three years in terms of the legacy no, of that, you I know. know. And there's the reporting in the media um, at the moment around uh, huge increases in domestic violence as well. Yeah. As um, people, families are at home yeah. um, and just more al- alcohol is a big correlation with domestic violence. Like, yeah. That's a fact. I was so thankful that, that we didn't have, like my wife wouldn't drink much at all. I was just so grateful that there wasn't drink in the house for the last nine months. I mean, however tough it has been, I, I can imagine what it would have been like. Yeah, and today, no matter how tough it is today, today you don't have to drink. And yeah. that's I'm very grateful for. Like, I found lockdown tough, to be honest, because um, the gym would be a big part of my recovery, you yeah. know. And when the gym was taken away, I didn't really... I never uh, factored in for gyms to be closed. Do you know what I mean? When <laughs> yeah. I was making my recovery routine, you know, yeah. my my mental health uh, regime, the, the gym is a big part of it. So, um, but no matter how hard I got, I didn't have to use. You know, there yeah. was other supports I had, including my wife, Timmy, the podcast, and, and family and all that. Um, but can I just ask you a little bit about? the book writing your book and the process and how was that was it re-traumatizing or I, I have a funny relationship with the book like it's there and I look at it now sometimes like I hadn't picked it up in ages like years maybe and I picked it off the shelf tonight when I was coming in GE and I didn't read it like I'm not sure if I've ever sat down and read it because it's almost like that was just this big long counselling session for me so the first half of the book it was really about my own story really honest really candid this is what I was thinking this is where it was and then I interviewed a lot of people like Des Bishop and other people I know John Laddie the hurler at the time who I knew had gone through a similar story 
and then I explored in the book, well, why is it in Ireland we have this particular relationship? So I went to, to London, to Kilburn, to where the Irish lads were left li- living in bedsits, horrendous scenes. And I interviewed them and I talked to them and I spent a lot of time with homeless people. I spent a time with morning drinkers. And so the book, I was really like when I look at it now, I can see I was trying myself to figure out how did I end up with this problem with alcohol? And then w- w- what is the society I've come from? But it's a funny thing that book because I was so honest in it and I threw it all on the page and in a way it's very public like it's out mm. there you can never take it back I'm am I comfortable I have a funny relationship but I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with it now is there a lot of fear around it do you, do you, like I know it's helped a lot of people like people would yeah. get in touch with me and say you know I give my book to your uncle for Christmas yeah, <laughs> tough yeah. Christmas yeah. um, little surprise look it's in your stocking <laughs> Does it seem like it's it's a different person? Totally. Mm. It, it feels like it's a different person. And sometimes I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I can't believe I was so yeah. honest. And I can't believe I was so upfront, you know. And this was a time before, you know, people like yourselves or Brezzy or people were really open about things. Yeah, yeah. And I was really, you were sort of on your own a little bit for a couple of years where I just... Um, it's a funny thing with the book I don't know what it is maybe I just haven't made peace with that book yet yeah. and maybe the book to me is a part of that time in my life where I've sort I, I don't recognise that it. it's all like I read a bit of it on the way in tonight and I was saying Jesus I can't remember writing that mm. it's almost like it, I'm writing someone else's book yeah. or reading it you know can you imagine the amount of people that are after getting help from it though yeah, yeah and that that is brilliant and that you might have, never know about like. yeah people mm. have said it to me and people have um, <clears throat> emailed me saying I think you can buy it as an e-book now I think it mightn't be in it's probably like 10 or 11 years old I'm not sure if you can buy What's it the name? Wasted Wasted yeah we link it in the <coughs> description here yeah right? I think you can get it as an ebook or something but um, uh, yeah so that was that book like I do think I think it was important for me to book in that story and to say right this is it I was sick of kind of being at weddings and people saying you're not drinking why are you not drinking mm. and I was sick of the kind of you know the the whispering around it and I thought you know what I'm going to take ownership of my story of this story and I'm going to use it to kind of explore a little bit and I've continued that on like a good friend of mine died from suicide about two just over a couple of years ago and I made a kind of program about suicide and about grief basically mm. I made a program about you know, yeah. just about how do we process grief. So I've always done that. Like, yeah. I suppose I would talk to an audience or talk to program more than I might talk to people who are I'm around every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's but the you irony. Know, you know, when I was going on the Tommy Turnman show, um, uh, they asked me in 2018, I declined just because... Too soon. To, to give your no, to give your story. It's not just your story. It's yeah. your family's story yeah. and your community's story. Um, when they came back the following year... <laughs> I had to confer with people. Uh, did you have to go to your family when you were writing the book? I were they okay with it? Um, I I think um, they came up to the late late, and they sat in the audience. You know, and the late late is obviously a nerve wracking experience. And you probably found it with Tommy that I remember. Like I launched the book that night, that evening. Cork got a flight up to Dublin. So there was flights to Dublin, so got a flight up. Just got in there in time. And I this is eleven years ago, maybe. So I hadn't done as much media broadcast as, as I have now and I was in and I was really nervous I hadn't slept for two nights and I was just thinking this is very public I don't know should I be talking about this and okay the book was out but mm. um and I was in the green room really nervous and I was queuing up for a cup of tea and Daniel O'Donnell was on the same night right <laughs> and Don Logue it was the night Don Logue kind of came out as oh, well yeah, so yeah, there was yeah. a lot going on yeah, right? yeah. and um, Don Logue was great we had a great chat and Daniel I remember, O'Donnell I actually remember that because that, that was huge yeah, at the time yeah yeah I was at the end of the show no one remembers me right <laughs> and uh, Daniel O'Donnell was on and he was queuing up for a tea in front of me and I was a nervous wreck I, I, I really was I was thinking jeez what am I doing here like I, I don't want to go on and he was getting a cup of tea and his hand was shaking in the saucer. And uh, I said, uh, geez, I'm a nervous wreck, Daniel. He said, I'm the same. I said, uh, you've done this show like how many times, you know? He said, oh, it doesn't matter. It's late, late. It doesn't matter how many times you do it. Right? So that set me off completely. I was going, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I went on and did the late, late. And the funny thing then, about a week or two later, my mum... So we did Late Late and it was fine. It was a short enough segment. I was on with Chris Luke, who's a brilliant emergency doctor in Cork, who's over the CA. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, he helped guy. me when I uh, done my ligaments in my Great ankle. Guy. Great guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's a big interest in addiction and he's he a big does, interest yeah. in nightclub culture and stuff. So Chris was on with me, I think. 
and um, about two weeks later, my mum went walking for her friend with one of her friends who she goes walking with every week, and my mum had said to me after, oh, you know, Margaret saw you on the late late, and got she was shocked. And my mum would have walked with Margaret, like, this is two or three years after I'd come out of rehab, four years maybe, and they'd never talked about it. My mum had never said it. So it was then it kind of mm-hmm. hit me that, Jesus, not everybody is as open as I am about this, and even in my own family. And maybe I should have thought a bit more about that, because for them, they were probably reliving it a little bit. And I'm not sure how much they would have told extended family and friends. Mm-hmm. And even though I was open about it, but... I suppose you sort of have to push beyond that stuff, do. really, don't you? It's, you it's, do. it's a big thing to do, really, to come yeah. out publicly like that. You know, even when we started a podcast and um, I talked about my own story at the beginning, you know, I had to really watch myself for yeah. two weeks because um, I didn't know what kind of feedback was going to come because of, of my history in, in, in crime and violence and stuff like that. I really didn't know what where people were going to accept me and I had to protect myself and by protecting myself I mean I had to shield myself I had to lock myself a little bit away and just feel all the different bits and pieces that were going on for me and try yeah. to stay out of my head because your head will go attack you yeah you know it, all it takes is for one person to say one really nasty thing and then you're gone <clears throat> yeah. you know but during that time as well I also had to understand and and see past it because I I understood the benefit of of my story in helping others, be, and and I knew that because of being in the air and in the air and listening to people after a meeting and people yeah. saying, Do you know what, Jesus, thanks for your story. You, I could really relate to it. Yeah, you know, you helped me an awful lot there, and that was just there, and and, and it kind of clicked, and I knew yeah. then. But you like. The podcast is what is yeah. Cork basically a lot of people in Cork listen to it and yeah. a lot of people elsewhere now are starting to yeah. tune yeah, in I'm sure they are yeah but like you were national and I can imagine you were young as well and yeah. so really I even James when James went on the, yeah. the time even, yeah. even another another negative consequence of that and I made out a little plan the pros and cons of doing this TV show because I knew Tommy's show was big like you know and I knew it was going to get a big audience the pros outweighed the cons, but one one of the pros obviously is going to the story is going to go to loads of people. Um, it's going to have big impact for probably somebody that's struggling in their bedroom or whatever, or it might spark something. But one of the cons was like, am I always going to be James, the ex heroin addict? You yeah. know, and that is a thing at the moment yeah. for me. That's why that's a, a it's 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 a part of the motivation that drives me with the academic stuff. You know, a few yeah. weeks ago I was on. Um, the radio here in Cork talking about a paper I published, you know, and I was on as James the criminologist, not James the ex-heroin addict. There's a lot of stuff in the media in the meantime, especially in the newspapers, ex-heroin addict James Leonard graduates or ex-heroin addict, you know. I fucking noise me, you know what I mean? Well, it got to the point with me where you would do interviews, this is maybe two years later, and people would say, now tell us how bad it was for you first. And I stopped going back there and I would say to them, I don't think there's anything to be gained from me retelling that part of my story to you because I think it actually adds to it. It's like that glorification. How much did you? How much could you drink? I would never answer that question mm. because it felt like the kind of that glorification of yeah. you know the romanticization of it. It felt like I was feeding into that. So it got to the point after a while where I would say, "Look, I'm happy to talk about the issues, but." And refer, you can refer to the fact and refer to whatever, but I'm not really going to go there anymore because I felt I'd moved to a point where I was almost campaigning, I suppose, a bit. That's an important, that's yeah. a very important... Uh, you have to have your said, boundaries. Like. Yeah. You can't be constantly talking about your story either no. because it's bringing up all these emotions. No. You know, that was one of the main reasons that I, when I did stop going to A, I stopped because... Um, I was bringing up my past constantly um, and when I was bringing her up I was talking about my story and, and I decided to stop doing it because I was bringing up all these emotions because you're talking about your story and my story yeah. was pretty violent yeah. you know there was a lot of mad shit went down and fucking drugs and you know it was just crazy chaotic time yeah. and um, I just came to the conclusion one day I said right this is it I stopped going to A, I stopped going to the psychotherapist, I stopped the whole lot of it because I, I, I didn't want to talk about my story anymore. Yeah. 
and I just started to focus on myself a little bit more <clears throat> outside of everything else and just start meditation just meditation and I started going inward you know and starting having a little bit more compassion and love for myself and that's when my life changed yeah you know that's when my that's life changed you see it's a funny thing with recovery and with treatment right is that it, it it's a broad kind of treatment is generally from from my experience of it anyway it's not individual it's fairly broad and it's it it they'll tailor it a little bit towards you but just in general terms there's a formula there it, it has worked in the past it'll work in the future and if you don't quite fit into that mold if you're not if you're like me i'm a non-believer i'm not very spiritual it was difficult for me to leave that part of my brain aside and to accept certain things in recovery mm. and i kept challenging it and in a meetings i remember and again, I, I'm not trying to knock A. I think they're fantastic. I have anyone who's ever come to me with a problem, I've told them that's the first place you should go. Yeah. But I struggled with the our father being said at A meetings, just a simple thing. For me, it felt like that was a, a, something that was making it hard for me to connect, right? Because I felt, well, I'm you know, it just it just didn't connect with me. So I can see why if I was delivering a treatment programme. I would have to have it broad like that to try yeah. and have as many people in it as I could. But then there there are ways, individual ways, like drinking the non-alcoholic beer if I'm out the odd time, like uh, going into a pub the odd time, like, you know, whatever, not. Like there are ways you can start to modify it. But, you know, having said, I probably became addicted to work for the first five or six years out of re- I definitely did. Yeah. I didn't move away from that. I'm running a lot at the moment and I'm probably pretty obsessed with that now. <laughs> I was obsessed with God for a few years. But there's, some, there's something about you You have the addictive personality. Yeah. We've established that early yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. But you channel that into more productive yeah. routes and there's nothing yeah. wrong with running and then you'll, you'll, you'll get sick of that and you'll go to the walk and all that. But yeah. at least you're not drinking. Yeah. You're not destroying your family or your health. Yeah. You know? And it's about channeling the, or the, the addiction into... So... Before we finish up, oh, yeah. right? Um, where can people contact you, and what's the future hold for Brian? Well, it depends on going to comment if it's on nice positive comments. or negative. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know his comments. Yeah. If you're going to call or, me a fraud, you can contact if people, me. If people maybe want to um, ask it's, a question, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not that somebody's a fraud or not. I know it's we're all individual people. Yeah. This is your way of dealing with. Yeah, you like in having a, a non-alcoholic drink. Yeah, you know that is. Com- completely and utterly your decision yeah. yeah you know and if you're and, and happy, like i should say to people it was maybe 10 years into my recovery yeah, exactly course, exactly you know and, i'm 16 yeah. years in now i i i thankfully don't feel that yeah. urge now yeah. there's and i would you know safe to say i can't i don't you know you never say mm. never but i definitely would find it difficult to see myself in that place where it would be a decision i would make because mm. i don't see what it would give me because sobriety mm. has given me so much yeah like it's given me everything i ever wanted i essentially have and what's the future hold for you right Th- that's a funny one i've never had a plan you know there's never been a career plan i feel privileged to work for rte i know media gets a hard time but i genuinely feel privileged to be able to tell people stories like mm. i was in cork prison last week uh, this week I was with a family whose son is waiting on scoliosis surgery they'd never talked to the media I, they trusted me we told their story hopefully it's going to make a difference so I feel very privileged like the last book I did was about more people's struggles and stories it was about the small ads the stories behind the small ads but being emotionally open which is what recovery has given me and what addiction gave me funny enough it gave me an openness that i have now that i that i maybe wouldn't have had has been great career-wise because i feel it's allowed me as a reporter Mm. and a journalist to be very open with people they're open in return so i'd like to just keep that going you know um any more books in the pipeline? I had an idea for a book, but COVID has sort of put pay to it. I'd like to do something on the idea of home and homelessness. And um, my family history is quite interesting in that in the 19th century, they were evicted for voting for Daniel O'Connell from a landed estate in West Clare. So the tenants were told by this landlord called Vandeleur, don't vote for Daniel O'Connell. He was the first Catholic who went for by-election in 1828 as an MP and he got elected. And so the family were evicted. That was in 1828, 1830 in West Clare. 
25 years later they had the famine they lived through the famine they built up their holding and then so my granddad was born in 1916 lived to 99 he would have known people who were in the famine who were dispossessed if you like so then i look i've done a lot with people on the streets a lot with that community and i seem to dip in and out of that community a lot so maybe mm. i might do something on that yeah your second the, the second book there uh, yeah small boys is it the small ads so small this ads. Is basically the idea was uh with the second book it's called the personals yeah and for years i'd been telling looking at the ads and the echo uh wedding dress for sale never worn mm. and i'd be thinking i wonder what the story yeah, is so i've been true, doing these yeah. radio reports for years where i tell i'll meet the person that's, and i tell gas. the story behind the ad. yeah, yeah. So, um, and just stories of addiction in the book. Yeah. There's people I met who were in active addiction, who were in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just picked a whole cross-section of ads and told the stories. Yeah, so that was the book last year. So it was great, yeah. yeah. That yeah. sounds very interesting, people's yeah. stories. But you stick it, it in an yeah. ideal Christmas stocking yeah. filler, yeah. I was at a conference a couple of years ago in um, UCC, Dr. Gabor Mate, he's a trauma specialist, but uh, he was giving us the stories behind the obituaries. Brilliant. And he says, I can tell you a lot about person based on their obituary. Yeah. So he read out, this is one example, um, Brian was a selfless man, um, <laughs> looked after everybody, never missed a day's work in his life, always kept his head down, never complained. And then he, he would say, Brian neglected himself to the, at, the, at the benefit of others. Brian never put himself first. <laughs> and Brian sad. died a young man because Brian neglected himself. Brilliant. And there was loads of them. Um, yeah, mm. but yeah. It was amazing. Like you, ha- you can't neglect yourself, you know. Yeah. Talking about Gabriel Matty, he's actually doing a he's doing a, he's doing an online class as well in January. If anybody, any anybody knows him and they're looking yeah. to to listen, I I've, I have one of or two of his books, and James is after reading them. But he was that guy in Canada there. I yeah. worked in um what was it a halfway house? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he started. His family would. Were Jews? I think he came true. Hungry, yeah, yeah. definitely hungry. Yeah. Um, but his wall. story alone is oh, mind blowing. Mm. But his work with addicts is yeah, it's, it's great. Brilliant. And it really we, understands it. Like. I, I find it interesting now as well. So I, I doing a lot of running, and when races were on, I'd be at the start line of a race, and I'd look around. And it was like half the back barns are Henry's in about 1996. <laughs> <laughs> and so every, I'd be recognising all these faces going, so we're all there on a Saturday morning, like, you know, chasing this natural high now, like I running know, races. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I'm going to really do this 5K. I can't wait for it. I'm going to be yeah. high on it. You know, it's like, yeah. So yeah. it's funny that you look for things, positive things to replace mm. it. Exactly. Um, yeah. There but, you but, but your life now seems to be... <clears throat> Doing, doing something yeah. good for you because you look very, very healthy. And you seem very happy. You're yeah. very... There's a great energy off you. You yeah. seem content and in yourself. Growing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it takes, like, you know, you're, whatever, 44 now. Mm. And I think, um, like I said, I haven't done... I haven't talked about recovery or about addiction in, in quite a while. So it's really good to be able to do it because I... Not that I lose touch with it, but... I sometimes it is really good to remind yourself yeah. this is where you were at and like I said the the outcomes aren't great you know the stats aren't great you're I, I feel blessed and lucky that I came through that yeah. and managed somehow to stay sober at, at, at a young age life. as well to yeah get at a young age you well know. I remember a funny thing that maybe maybe nine months or a year and I leave you with this after I, after I came out of Tabor Lodge I was in a bar one night right I know I was in a lot of bars I wasn't but <laughs> And I can see my concerts now from back in the day are looking at this going, Jesus Christ, it didn't work. And um, I was chatting to this girl and I thought we were getting on great. Like, I thought this was going great. I was drinking Ballygowns with a dash of lime at the time. It was a Friday night. You're a rebel. Friday night. <laughs> the weekend is here. And um, so I was chatting away, like, you know, getting on great. And towards the end of the night, she turned to me and said, Jesus, I'd say you were great crack when you were drinking. And mm. it was a weird comment, like, because I, I thought, geez, that is a comment you would not hear in a con- mm. in continental Europe, for example. Yeah. It was almost like, and I thought we'd been having a good crack, like, yeah. I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm mm. done my good crack I know, now. I know. So it's that Irish thing that you couldn't yeah. uh, be a kind of a fully participant in a social setting unless you were having a few drinks, you know. Yeah. And that was the hardest thing to adapt to. Yeah. And then after a while, I, 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 you just have to kind of riff off that and think, yeah. right, okay, whatever. I actually don't like uh, social settings where there's alcohol like I don't mind going to 21st or a yeah. wedding 
or whatever. There's a but cut-off point. Once people start yeah. getting drunk yeah. or tipsy even, yeah. I get very anxious because yeah. people change, you know? They do, yeah. And I can have a conversation like this now. But after two pints, you're not the same person. I am, yeah. but you're not. And I have no tolerance for the bullshit, yeah. you know? Because a lot of the talking and alcohol is bullshit like this. But I do think I do think it's changed. Like, I do think it's easier to be a young person now, 2021, and to say, I'm going to I'm going out tonight and no, yeah. I'm not going to drink tonight, lads. I just, I'm going to the gym in the morning got stuff on i'm on a program whatever yeah and that wasn't there like i would say it's still difficult to identify you have a problem for sure but yeah. i think it's easier to be sober yeah and look i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna wrap it up because we're running out of time with the batteries oh, and all yeah. that so uh, <laughs> but um thanks for coming over thanks for having me lads you're thanks doing great stuff and talking with us uh, i'm sure it's going to help a lot of people Anybody has nice comments, they can direct Twitter. them to Twitter. Yeah, and I'm on I, O'Connell Bryan on Twitter. Yeah, and I link uh, your your Twitter handle in the description. Also, I link your couple of books. Oh yeah. Um and yeah, and your radio show. Oh yeah, so the show's today with Claire Byrne at the moment. Yeah, tell Claire we said hi. And another thing, if if people have stories, that's yeah, yeah, that, drop me a line. Yeah, yeah, if they think there's no you, problem, you know, yeah, even yeah. contact you and say listen Absolutely. to me. They'll get a fair hearing anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly yeah. Well done, by So thanks a million, Brian. And uh, we'll see you all next week. And just before we go, I just want to say um, a lot of people contacting us on social media and email. Um, if we haven't got back to you yet, please follow up with another uh, message because we get a lot. And myself and Timmy are working full-time and we're doing other stuff outside of that as well. So this is a kind of a part-time hobby, labour-love type thing. Uh, we'd love to be able to give it more time so if we didn't reply to you yet, um, please just follow up. We'd love to. We don't want to be. Uh, um, we don't want anybody to fall through the cracks, and we'd like to help everybody. So um, if we didn't reply to you yet, just follow up, and we'll see you next week with another great guest. Slant. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.